Welcome to Soft Landing, the podcast that makes interior design accessible to everyone. Hey guys, I'm Amy. I'm an interior designer, artist, and space planner. I'm here to talk about everything you need to know about interior design, from furniture to finances. I'm sharing over a decade of experience to help you find real design solutions and craft the space of your dreams. Hello, my fancy friends. Friday, April 22nd is Earth Day, and we celebrate the Earth every day in this house. But especially on Earth Day, take a minute to appreciate all the beauty that surrounds us. You can hug a tree if you want, or you can even just identify a tree that lives near you. Here in New York City, we have a great website called the Street Tree Map. You can look at any location in the five boroughs. It operates just like Google or Apple Maps, and you can see the species and the trunk diameter of any tree along the sidewalk. The website is maintained by the Parks Department, and it's really been a mystery solver for me personally. I live in a tree-rich neighborhood, and we have these massive trees. Their trunks are like three and a half feet in diameter and every year towards the end of the summer they shed their bark completely it's like a snake shedding its skin there's bark all over people's yards on the sidewalk in the street the first time i saw it i thought it was some kind of fungus causing the trees some kind of harm but it turns out that these are london plane trees which are similar to the sycamore and I was able to look this up on our handy dandy street tree map. And this is actually the most common tree in all of New York City, but it can also be found in Australia, South Africa, and China. The bark shedding is totally normal. It's a process the tree goes through every year, and it's actually how the tree cleans itself from pests and pollution. So it's basically giving itself an annual chemical peel. Nature is so smart. My point is, there are so many ways we can connect with our amazing planet on Earth Day that are easy, fun, and beneficial. On this podcast, we are celebrating Earth Day this year by taking a closer look at the LEED rating system for buildings. L-E-E-D is an acronym for Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design, and you may have seen this word engraved on a round plaque outside your school or office, library, or other major building. It's nice to see, and goodness knows we love plaques on buildings, but what does it actually mean? And what's more important, what are the principles and concepts that you can take to heart and incorporate into your home to make it more sustainable? I'm willing to bet there are things you're already doing that would earn your home plenty of lead points. We're going to break down the process of getting a building certified, the history of the lead system, and even a little bit of steaming hot criticism. So roll out the jute carpet and get yourself a cup of organic hand-picked herbal tea because we are going through a crash course in sustainability of the built environment. But first, let's talk about the color of the week. Spring blossoms are making way for brand new baby leaves on the trees. This shade of green is much more energetic and vibrant than the typical full-grown leaf green. 
this yellow-green, almost chartreuse hue, is captured in Pantone 583. This is one of my favorite colors for accent or armchairs in the living room. It's a great color for storage pieces like credenzas. And if you really want everyone to know how fearless you are, try painting your front door Sherwin-Williams SW6703 called Frolic. This color looks awesome with a grounding navy blue background plus your glowing personality. This episode is brought to you by Soft Landing Studio. If you enjoy this podcast and want to take your space to the next level, you can book a virtual appointment with me to review your home, office, or retail project. Whether you want a quick brainstorming session, a series of regular check-ins during your renovation, or to work with my full interior design services. We will talk through all your interior design goals, dreams, and aspirations, and give you a roadmap to get there. Go to www.softlandingstudio.com to schedule your experience now. And while you're there, don't forget to download the absolutely free guide to getting started. This fun-filled PDF quiz will orient you at the very beginning of your interior design journey. If you know you aren't 100% happy in your space, but you don't know what to do about it, this guide is for you. You will be directed towards big idea solutions, so you'll know what to do, and most importantly, what to avoid. Go to www.softlandingstudio.com for your free copy today. Before I really dive into things, I want to put in the caveat that I am actively working to oversimplify this information. This is by no means a podcast that will prepare you to take the lead exam. My goal is to give you a general understanding of this classification system without all the gory details because the reality is that LEED is a complex system with its own lexicon, definitions, and coding. But you don't have to absorb any of that to understand the big ideas of LEED. Goodness knows, I am very selective about what information I hold in my brain and you can be too. One thing that's important to know about the world of interior design and architecture is that it leans heavily on assumed standards and universally accepted consistencies. For instance, ask a designer how high the seat of a chair should be, and they'll probably say between 17 and 19 inches. Why? Because that's a height that accommodates a majority of body types comfortably. Part of the job of an interior designer is to commit many of these standards to memory. It isn't just dimensions and proportions, it's also practical material-related anecdotes like all walls need bases or the more grout lines on a floor tile, the less slippery it is. In order to function efficiently, our industry relies on standards, basically so we can avoid reinventing the wheel on every project, although that certainly comes up in other areas, try as we might. So in 1993, a group of architects came together in the interest of standardizing specific environmentally conscious design tactics. They formed the United States Green Building Council, or the USGBC as we call them, as a nonprofit to champion sustainable design and building efforts. They had a few goals in mind when they set out to determine standards. Firstly, 
There was a need to change the way buildings were designed to lower energy consumption. Energy in a building is used through electric light, air conditioning, heating, and ventilation. Depending on the size of a building and the types of systems installed, this can end up being a major cost for building owners, and it's a big letdown when a client makes a huge investment to get a new building, only to be thrown off by their brand new electric bill. The second goal is the health of building occupants. That's us, guys. This is coming off the heels of the 1980s, when the office building really took flight. It was all about getting lots of people in as little space as possible, and there wasn't an emphasis on things like access to daylight, views to the outside, or the impact that materials and their associated glues and sealants had on the air quality inside the building. There are buildings from the 1980s that are downright awful to be in. And identifying what those awful making factors were and creating standards to counteract them was critical. Lastly, there is the idea of environmental responsibility. The construction industry is responsible for a hefty portion of the world's carbon emissions, and the USGBC wanted to quantify ways to redefine the process of creating buildings to cut out needless waste. This included saving resources, reducing waste, and diverting it from landfills. We'll talk about all the ways the materials we use have an impact on the well-being of the planet, but the short story is, when in doubt, shop local. With these goals in mind, over the span of roughly a decade, the USGBC created a few things. The lead rating system for buildings, lead accreditation of professionals, and the Green Business Certification Incorporation, or GBCI as we call them, which is an independent third party that provides oversight on both project certification and professional accreditation. So great, these things come into existence now, they just need to get designers and clients to buy into the whole thing. The LEED Steering Committee worked with other nonprofits and particularly government agencies to refine the guidelines, and right from the beginning, LEED worked very closely with the United States federal government to launch their first set of standards and rating system. My opinion on why LEED and the government have always been so tied at the hip is that the federal government, when you think about it, has buildings in every major city in America roughly 369 million square feet in almost 9,000 cities. So little cuts in the cost of the lighting bill start to add up big time. In turn, different tax credits and incentives were offered to the private sector for adopting a lead certification, and an empire was born. But that, of course, is simply my opinion from years of observation. Now, LEED has changed a lot over the past 20 years, and especially in the last 10, so while I'm not going to go into the super specific details of the credit point system or all the different rating systems, I'm going to highlight the most pertinent things from specifically an interior design perspective, of course. One big distinction I always like to call out is that buildings get LEED certification while people, aka professionals, get LEED accredited. 
I received my LEAD accreditation in 2009 after studying for about two months and taking a multiple choice exam on a computer in a very tense testing facility. I definitely had a panic attack during the test. It was my first professional exam. The majority of the exam was focused on memorizing the points of the system, and at the time there was only one type of accreditation. Today there are all different levels of accreditation, starting with an entry test that gives one the title of Lead Green Associate. There are additional exams that give one the title of Lead Accredited Professional, plus a specialty which could be construction, commercial interiors, operations, homes, or neighborhoods. If you want to go even further, after 8 to 10 years, you can apply to become a LEAD Fellow, which is really a recognition of excellence and accomplishment in the sustainable built environment. Being a LEAD Accredited Professional, or AP for short, of any level shows dedication and commitment to your industry. It tells prospective employers, clients, and colleagues that you value environmental considerations, and your designs will tend to reflect this whether a project applies for LEAD certification or not. So, People are accredited and buildings are certified. So let's talk about the different types of certifications. Just like with the specialty exams, each project starts by selecting a specific LEED rating system, construction, commercial interiors, operations, homes, or neighborhoods. It's straightforward. You just select the one that fits your project. For us, that ends up being either commercial interiors or homes. Then you're given a long checklist of achievements that will give you a certain amount of points. At the end of the project, the points are totaled, and depending on how many points you got, the project is rated from simply certified to silver, gold, or platinum, or the project is rejected if you don't get the minimum amount of points. In New York City, the energy codes are stringent enough that complying with them and throwing in a few recycled materials will get a project to silver status pretty easily. In fact, once material manufacturers started adjusting the content of their products to better align with LEED guidelines, the USGBC updated LEED standards to include even more requirements that were more challenging to achieve. While at first this might seem like a frustrating move of the goalpost, the organization stated that LEED's criteria were always meant to be in some ways aspirational and to push the industry as a whole to strive for even greater sustainable measures. So what are these points and how can we get them? Many of them are related to things beyond an interior designer's control. Having a clean, efficient HVAC system, using sustainable energy sources, not building on a floodplain, dedicating a space for bicycle parking, and even things like being in a walkable neighborhood will earn you points. Access to public transportation and community resources is a great one, too. The location of your space must be within half a mile of at least four of the following places. I'm just going to read them off the list. A post office, public library, clinic, school, daycare, recreation center, pharmacy, grocery store, bank, place of worship, or gym facility. Sounds like everything you could want. 
Having these types of support nearby naturally means those of us living or working in the building will rely less on cars. Okay, we've cracked through the shell of this episode. We are now to the deliciously sweet center where we get to talk about interior design. There are a few different point categories that revolve around material selections, and we've spoken about a lot of these ideas in previous episodes. First is using rapidly renewable materials. This is referring to the amount of time that a natural resource needs to grow from start to finish. A prime example is bamboo wood flooring, which can fully mature within 10 years of being planted. Other woods take 40 plus years. Oh my gosh. Other beautiful choices include cork, natural rubber, and my favorite, linoleum. We can also look at materials in our furniture, like using wheat board panels instead of MDF, soy-based foam agents, and organic cotton and linen for fabrics. The idea is that we aren't depleting resources that take hundreds of years to replenish. For instance, the super popular Carrera marble is over 200 million years old. So if we go through the earth's stock, we're done for our lifetime. Whereas linoleum, which is made from linseed oil, can be regrown and harvested after five months. I mentioned buying local earlier, and LEED has found a way to quantify this concept. The goal is to use products and materials that are manufactured within 500 miles of your home or project. This can even be extended to closer to 1,500 miles if the item is transported by train or an inland waterway rather than freight or plane. This is actually one of the harder credits to achieve, I think, considering we fancy design lovers are obsessed with beautiful things from across the ocean and on the other side of the globe, or even the opposite coast. Plus, products tend to be made in clustered hubs around the world. For example, many carpets are made in the state of Georgia, tile is prolific in Spain, and furniture's hotspots are North Carolina and Michigan. As professional designers, we are always keeping running lists of local manufacturers or even various regional ones if we have out-of-town clients. It's not likely every material is going to fit into this category, but you only need around 20% of the materials in your home to be local to get the lead points. Try researching local and regional manufacturers. If you can find a resource for a big item like flooring or even paint that's made locally, that's a huge win. When I buy food at the grocery store, I'm constantly checking ingredient labels for foods I like and ones I want to avoid. Lead pushes us to do the same thing with materials we use in our spaces. There is a list of no-no materials to avoid, like vinyl in its various forms. These can actually reduce the quality of the air we breathe indoors as they emit that famous new car smell, which it turns out is not good to inhale for months and even years after being installed. Then there are materials we love to see, like recycled content. 
rubber, glass, metal, plastic bottles, and fibers like nylon can all be recycled, and it's very common for materials to contain small amounts of these. There is even the opportunity to get creative, like the company Dextool that makes wall tiles out of old skateboards. It's a very cool look. We love waste deferral. Okay, so Lita's pretty cool, but it's not without its share of criticism, and rightfully so. All industry standards should be reviewed, analyzed, and improved when possible, but the piping hot green tea we are sipping today is served with some good food for thought. One of the more prevalent criticisms I've heard of LEED is that there isn't enough follow-up on the energy performance of buildings after they've been built. So while there is a great focus on the design of the buildings, there isn't someone going back and checking to see if the building is in fact performing as intended. Others have criticized the process for being too lengthy and ultimately just another series of paperwork that can exclude projects with tight deadlines and short timelines. Plenty of people feel that LEED's criteria is not innovative enough. With the current climate crisis, the idea of having carpet made with 20% recycled plastic bottles can feel like a drop in the ocean. Not to mention the rampant greenwashing of products for interior designers to choose from, manufacturers insisting their products are sustainable when really they're not. Others have noticed that for some companies, getting a LEED certification is much less about aligning with a sustainable ethos as it is about public relations. There have been multiple instances of large organizations that have touted their brand new office's LEED status, only to later uncover that the new offices were located miles away from sister locations or key resources, forcing employees to drive or commute more. My opinion is that one of the best ways LEED could improve is to offer exemptions on their fees to small businesses, nonprofits, Black-owned businesses, and B Corps. LEED is not a free service. It takes time and money to get that shiny plaque, and that is often a deal breaker for many clients. The number of true lead projects I have worked on, I can count on one hand in 15 years. The number of projects I've worked on where clients want to follow the guidelines lead has set up without actually filing for lead certification are a great many. What do you think? Is lead worth it? Which one of the points are you most excited about? Leave a comment over on my latest Instagram post and let me know. I love hearing from you. Until next time, water yourself, keeping awesome, and get outside once in a while. Bye.